Right on. So where you guys are in Revelation chapter 22, this is the very last chapter of the whole Bible. The Bible is composed of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. From Genesis to Revelation, the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, and the New Testament is Matthew to Revelation. And the very last thought found in the, the book of Revelation, notice the proof text where I want us to go to have the title of my message is found right here. Notice what it says in verse 18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. The title of this message this morning simply is Why the King James? Here at this ministry, here today, this morning, we believe and teach what is known as King James only. Now, a lot of people, this is a controversy amongst Christian circles and subjects, and it doesn't need to be or shouldn't be. And the reason that we are King James only is because we believe in the preservation of God's word. We've always heard different churches and statement of faith amongst different denominations say we believe in the inerrant, inspired word of God. But a lot of times they won't claim in the preservation of God's word. To preserve something means to keep it pure all the way through. And if something is inspired of God, that just means it is God said. Think about, you know, in to be like uh, inspired is to say God has said. Inerrant means without error because God is perfect. And preserve means that it is the same as Jesus says, yesterday, today, and forever. I am the beginning and the end. As it says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now today, there are a lot of English speaking Bible, or English language Bibles in our 2020 America. Now here's the thing. We're going to learn why and what it is that is wrong with these modern translations. Modern translations have a lot of problems with them. And the, the two emphasis that we're going to point out is number one, they're using a different underlying Greek manuscript. And then number two, it is done by poor scholarship. So there are two problems with these newer translations of the Bible. And understand this, in our English today, we have over 5,000 different types of Bible. Now let me ask you this. If God wants us to know what it is he said, whenever a man of God comes behind a pulpit or preaches on the words of God and says, thus saith the Lord, there cannot be a discrepancy. There cannot be an error. There cannot be a misunderstanding of what those words are. And in our English today, we know that the King James Bible is the perfect, preserved, inerrant Bible. It is what God has said, whether that be in Greek, whether that be in Hebrew, God can convey his message in any language in the world. And in our English, we believe that the King James is, the, that's it. There, there doesn't need to be a bettering of our English. Why? Because everything that the Bible teaches, some people will say that the King James Bible is Old English. Because it says thee and thou and thine and all these things. But rather, if you actually do your research, the King James Bible and the English translations leading up to it are known as Modern English. We today speak what's known as a contemporary English, 
which is if you notice you go to Europe and you know England and stuff like that they have a little bit more sophisticated English which is closer to the King's English or what's known as Elizabethan English and we kind of laugh at their understanding of how things are phrased but nevertheless they're actually closer to a more accurate English it's not that we're inaccurate as contemporary English speakers it's just that these words are not old or archaic or obsolete in any way shape or form these are actually modern English terms that we and you and anyone can understand if they under if they believe number one the, the the Word of God and only by believing can we completely understand it now is there hard statements and phrases and words in the King James of course I'm not gonna sit there and sugarcoat but the thing is we are being dumbed down as a people we need to be gain more sophistication the world today is becoming less and less educated and let alone their own language but on the concept of scholarship and like I said we're gonna go into the reasonings of why we believe that the King James is perfect now let me ask anyone here does anyone speak Hebrew here does anyone speak Greek here so if anyone ever comes to you and tells you that let me tell you what the Greek says you need to go back to the Hebrew to understand truly what God has meant then you don't understand the concept of preservation or inerrancy God has created our English God has created Hebrew why is the Old Testament in Hebrew but the New Testament is Greek because the same message is being conveyed in multiple language we understand that God has designed or in the story of the Tower of Babel all the people were of one language at that moment in time then God decided to confound their languages because he told them to go into the rest of the world and populate the world but because they tried to come together under one language and under one system God says this is wrong I'm going to create multiple languages in the Tower of Babel and then they spread apart so God is obviously transcends language and this is what it means to have the Word of God because with that being said I, I too much today get when I go soul winning or preaching the gospel and I have someone hit me at the door saying well you know actually in the original Greek it says this I just simply ask them you know and every time they give you the dumbfounded look like what and all I simply asked was do you speak Greek the most simplest phrase that could be taught in any language if I were to go up to someone and say espanol, that's the same exact statement what if I said all I'm saying is do you speak that language so when you go up to someone who tries to claim that Greek is how we are to understand clearly, ask him simply, do you speak Greek? And 99% of the times, they're all going to give you that dumbfounded look of, wait, what? What did you just say? Because they don't know Greek. And not only do they not know Greek, do you, let me just get into the rest of the subject. I'll show you what I mean. So number one, we got to understand that there has been an attack on the word of God all the way from the beginning. The very first time we see Satan revealed in Genesis chapter 3, what is the first words out of the snake's, the serpent's mouth to Eve? It simply is, Yea hath God said. Did God say, fill in the blank, you should not eat of the trees of the knowledge of good and evil? And then she went, he caused doubt in the heart of Eve. Did God say this? So obviously there's always been an attack on the word of God. The Bible teaches that he extols his word above his name. Tell that to the Jehovah's Witness that is trying to extol his name above his word. Because in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. God says, if you take from my word, I will take your part out of the book of life. If you add to my word, I will add to you the plagues that are written in this book. And I don't know if you've read Revelation, but there are some crazy plagues that will be on the unsaved. 
scorpions stinging them, stars flying from heaven, angels killing a third of the planet, blood being dispersed through all the water sources. There's a lot of horrible, wicked things. And if you tamper with God's word, he said, I will add to you the plagues that are written in this book. There are three unpardonable sins that the Bible teaches, or sins that will never be forgiven, one of which is known as the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. Jesus says, all manners of blasphemy will be forgiven of men. If I were to stub my toe and yell, OMG, I'm mad at God because I stubbed my toe. That's blasphemy. If you're not speaking to God or about God, his name should not be in your mouth, period. But here's the thing, there are three members within the Trinity, the Father, the Word of the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the member of the Trinity, the Holy Ghost, is the member that helps holy men of God speak the words of God. These words are pure. These words that I preach unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Jesus Christ was that word made flesh. The first unpardonable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. Someone blasphemes the Son, Jesus Christ, that is horrible, and you better watch your tongue. So much, if I at work or other places amongst customers and even loved ones and families, will drop OMG bombs, the Lord Jesus Christ's name under no circumstance what it needs to be. But nevertheless, when they do so, you need to rebuke them and say, hey, watch your mouth. You know, it's not like someone stubs their toe and is like, oh, Buddha. You know, that would be messed up as well. But nevertheless, Buddha is a false deity that's a false religion that's another thing but the second unpardonable sin that the bible teaches is receiving the mark of the beast in revelation it talks about that in one time in history in the future to come there will be a one world system there'll be a one world religion there'll be a one world currency and that is through the mark of the beast you have to worship the beast or who's known as the antichrist the person in place of christ and if you worship him you'll receive a mark and you will be done. You're, you are no longer savable. You are unpardonable. Blaspheme the Holy Ghost, receive the mark of the beast, and the last one is if you tamper with God's word. If you take from his word or add it to his word, he says, I, God himself, will personally make sure you can never be saved. Period. Now, that's why I want us to first understand the severity of why we need to believe and understand that we do have an all-word perfect Bible. Now, I don't know how much you guys understand about history leading up to our English King James or anything like that. And I do have to point out some historical facts and some things like that. But I don't want to emphasize too much on the history because we believe by faith the worlds were created of old. It is impossible to please him without believing that he is. We, No matter what, before we move into the proofs of history, the proofs of scholarship, the proofs of whatever the subject is, we first believe that God has said he will preserve his word. As he said, Jesus says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, not the thoughts, not the ideas, my words will not pass away. It is more likely that this earth will be blown up and destroyed than that these words will change, according to Jesus Christ. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus said, there is not one jot or one tittle that shall in any wise be taken from the law to all be fulfilled. So with that being said, understand this. Satan is the one who has attacked the preservation of God's word. Yay, did God say that? Is this what he said? But not only that, we believe that the word of God is our weapon to fight the spiritual battles. When we go out and try to preach against false doctrine, false ideology, 
you know, get people saved. We put on the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, our shoes, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith that protects us through everything. But then we have our only offensive weapon, the sword, the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of men. This is the weapon in which we are to bring it to people. There is a spiritual battle going on. Make no bones about it. And Satan wants to take your weapon from you. Too much in the times of history. We can just look in secular history and see that when evil men want to destroy a people, what do they do? First, disarm everyone. They don't want to disarm you so they can protect you. They want to disarm you so you cannot defend yourself. Because the word of God is our instrument in which we are to fight the Lord's battle. So when an evil dictator in the history has ever decided to take over a group of people, first he comes in and says, take all their weapons. Then we'll do what we're going to do. Satan wants nothing more than to take away the two-edged sword of the word of God and give you a spoon called the NIV, a butter knife called the New King James, a spork called the NLT. Name the translational doctrinal perversion of the Bible and make no bones. They're not just different on insequential, non-important subjects. I'm going to teach and show you right now that the changes made in these modern translations are strategic changes, not just to change doctrine, but to cause doubt in the heart of believers to understand whether yea hath God said. No more today has the word of God been under attack than ever in history. His word has always been under attack, and we needed to start there. Now, let's go into some historical facts. But first, I just wanted you to understand, before you listen to me, before you listen to a scholar, before you listen to a theologian, historian, or anyone that has these human secular facts, first, you need to believe the words that are found in the written in the King James. Because I can only appeal to these words. It is the final authority for all faith and practice. So if I ever come and say, thus saith the Lord, I better be confident that that is what God has said. Because the Bible talks about false prophets when it says, if a prophet say something that I have not said, that man is a false prophet and it deserves to die. Because he is, he is saying, thus saith the Lord, and it's not. So there's a lot that is writing on this. The Bible throughout clearly emphasizes the importance of his word. Now, let's go into some simple, quick historical facts and concepts that we can help understand to whenever we have gainsayers or people try to attack us and why we believe in a perfect word Bible that we can point to in just history that will help us to understand the simplicity of the preservation of God's word. So to catch you up to speed, you got to understand this. When the early church started their ministry, they obviously, there's new, there was no writings of the New Testament. They were being created. The authors were writing them in the midst of it. But then after the first, second, and then around the third century, we obviously had Greek manuscripts. Manu, think about mono hand. Script is like a writing. So handwritten documents, epistles, gospels that were hand down from person to person. And we believe that the Greek manuscripts that are what we have are those that have been preserved. And we believe in what's known as the TR or the Textus Receptus, the received text of the past. That there has always been a text that someone gave someone, and then that person gave it to someone, and they copied and copied and copied and copied and so on and so forth. But in around 300 AD, there was a 
pivotal event that happened in history. Does anyone know what happened in 325? Constantinople, Constantine the Great, the Council of Nicaea. Obviously in this time period of history, there has always been a group of Christian people who have always followed the traditions of the church. But you gotta understand there is this man named Constantine who was a singular Roman emperor who was trying to divide and conquer the whole Roman Empire and was actually the first emperor to take over the whole entire Roman Empire. And through doing this, as we see our politicians today doing, he needed to grab the Democrats and the Republicans and stick them together and say, we all, he's gonna tell the Democrat what he wants to hear, he's gonna tell the Republican what he wants to hear, but nevertheless, he doesn't care about either, he cares about himself and lifting himself up. So he went to the pagans and said, here's what you wanna hear, he goes to the Christians and says, here's what you wanna hear, but we need you two to stop fighting and we're gonna put you together comes the birth of what is known as the United Church of Rome. Let's translate that for you in Latin, the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic just simply means united. The pagans of Rome and the Christians that have been around for the last 200 years needed to come together so that Con Emperor Constantine could have his reign because he can't be divided amongst his people. So he created this group called the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church has been and always will be an attack on the true church of God. We don't believe in the universal church. The Bible teaches that there is a bride of Christ made up of all believers, but there are individual local assemblies of churches. I'm not united with someone in California right now because the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, and so much the more as we see the day of Christ approaching. Those who are assembled in California, in Africa, in Jamaica, or wherever the place is, they are the local assembly of the word church just means congregation, the coming together of people. We are here assembled, but I will say this just to emphasize, as of right now, we are not considered a church because I am not considered a pastor. I am not an evangelist. I am a preacher as John the Baptist was a preacher. But nevertheless, a church, as we said earlier, needs to be done with things decently and in order. And there needs to be an under shepherd under Christ that helps or a bishop that instructs the people of God. So this event was created to basically create an empire, to take over the known world at that time. Fast forward a couple of years, we have then been, the, the, that church, the Catholic Church, there's been what's known as the Great Schism amongst the Orthodox Church, or the Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church because Greek Orthodox people looked at the Greek manuscripts and said, uh, you're not saying what this says. Baptismo does not mean sprinkle them. Baptismo means to be immersed under water. So the Great Schism was an event where Greek people looked at the manuscripts and said, you're translating this wrong. Your Latin Vulgate or your Latin translation of the Greek words have tampered with the doctrine of baptism and others. Then there was a second Great Awakening of the church and other things like that. But nevertheless, we're going to fast forward a lot through time. Throughout 300 up to this very moment, there's been a lot of attack on the words of God. But in around 1516 is when we have a man named Erasmus come into the scene. Now understand this, Erasmus was a Catholic monk. And Erasmus took the church, the Roman Catholic Church's Latin manuscripts, took the original Greek Textus Receptus, put them together and created the TR. He gave the comparison to the reader. He says, this is what the Latin says that translated from these Greek words. You, the reader, decide whether these are same or different. And this single-handedly was the bullet that destroyed 
the Roman Catholic Church because once Erasmus of Rotterdale came out in 1516 with his translation of the Greek or his understanding of the differences between them, it showed the common people that the Roman Catholic Church has been tampering with God's word. Because all up to this point, there's been a lot of persecution between Catholics or Christians and Catholics. So he just wanted to point the evidence out there and to show people what the difference was. Now, we're going to go a little bit further. We're going to go into what's known as the Tyndale Bible. Raise your hand if you've heard the Tyndale Bible. This was done in 1560 or 1526. A lot of people think that our King James Bible is the first English translation of the Bible. It's wrong. This is not the first English translation of the Bible. It is the perfect translation, but it's not the first translation of English. The Tyndale Bible, done in 1526, was done by William Tyndale, who is the inventor of our modern English. William Tyndale was a scholar who basically, remember, we're the common people around that time are speaking a Middle English. He then creates a modern English, which is our understanding of general conversation. Because royalty and the normal people weren't speaking tentatively at the same time. Think about the Roman Catholic Church. What is the main translation they preach to people on their Sundays? They preach a Latin version of their translation. How many Latin is known as a dead language. It's not spoken as a common language. But what is a common language? Spanish. That's a common group of people that can all, today, right now, we can all speak Spanish. But Latin is known as a scholar language. As Koine Greek is known as a scholar language. Yet we have a modern Greek today, like I just showed you guys earlier, that these people who are claiming that ancient Greek is different than modern Greek can't even understand the difference between the two. Just like if we were to look at the Beowulf poems in our English today. There is a difference, but not amongst middle or modern English. Tyndale created our modern English. You know, words like, you know, just to be able to simply convey a thought. And he thought he was the one who composed, or composed this um, literary understanding, which is known as, uh, it's like, it's called early, early English prose or something like that. And that word just simply means straightforward, a straightforward thought of what anyone's trying to say. So number one, we have Erasmus in 1516 coming out, showing that the Greek manuscripts are contradicting the Latin Vulgate. Number two, then we have a man named uh, uh, William Tyndale in 1526 who created the first English New Testament. He couldn't finish his whole draft of the whole Bible. He was in the process of translating the Hebrew into English, but they didn't like what he was doing. Why? Because he's trying to give the common person the Word of God. And the Roman Catholic Church didn't want the common person knowing what the Word said. So they persecuted him, prisoned him, and killed him. And when they killed him, you got to understand, there is documented his very last statements on the stake being burned alive and strangled. This man who's trying to give you and me and everyone the Word of God and our common understanding of the words. In doing this, they thought that that was an attack on the established Roman Church. They're like, you're trying to teach people God's Word. Yes, the Bible teaches that. We need not that any man teach us. The same anointing that is in me is in you. So I don't need that a pope or a father or an elder explain to me on these words. You don't need me to tell you what these words says. The Bible teaches in the book of Acts that the Bereans and the apostles preached. 
accept the word, took it home, and then searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. You need to judge whether what I'm saying is true. Don't trust me only. The final authority is the word of God. These are where we derive all, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for correction and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfectly furnished unto good works. Don't just take me as the final authority. Don't take a pope as the final authority. Don't take William Tyndale. Use the words of God to tell you what it is. Now, obviously, we have preachers and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, but nevertheless, a pastor, a preacher could be wrong about a doctrine. And you need to go with what the Bible says above what a man says. We ought to obey God rather than men, as the Bible says. Let's fast forward. You know, after William Tyndale's first English translation of the New Testament and partial of the Old Testament, someone needed to complete his work. And that was a guy named uh, Miles Coverdale in 1535. Now, these are about 10 years from each other, right? He was the first one to compound the whole entire English Bible, the whole thing. I'm not going to go into the rest of the other uh, English Bibles in depth because those are the, the major ones you need to know is Erasmus's TR or Greek uh, Texas Receptus, William Tyndale's the inventor of our English, Coverdale finishes work, then we have the Matthew Bible, then we have the Great Bible, and then we have the Geneva Bible come out in 1560. This is the first family or study Bible because this was a Bible that you know came across the new world. You got to think about it. Everyone's in Europe and in Rome and then the Mayflower and people start coming to the uh, Americas. This is the Bible that comes over to the Americas and settles Jamestown. This is the Bible that they were using to preach to Native American people and other types of people to get the Word of God across. The Geneva Bible being the first study Bible is one of those Bibles that we can look to as the first one that had verses. Because everything before this, it was just chapter divisions. John 3.16, you know where that came from? The Geneva Bible. Because before that, it was just John 3. And before that, it was just the, or the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John turned into John 1 through... Then it turned into John 1, 2, 3, verse 16. Geneva Bible, the first study Bible that people can cross-reference other passages and things like that. But then after the Geneva Bible, we had what's known as the Bishop's Bible. Because with the Bishop's Bible, you had elders, bishops, translating and making sure that they can kind of cross the T's and dot the I's and make sure everything's right. But there was a problem because most of the people were using the Geneva. And then the churches are using the bishops because it's authoritative. It's the pastor has translated and bishops have went through this and there was you know this isn't this isn't wrong bibles be being corrected this is a good translation going from good to better to best this is why we say the king james is the perfect translation if you had a geneva bible today guess what you can get someone saved because that's the word of god in our english if you had the furthest removed english translation of the bible william tyndale's new testament i just within the week have been studying the william tyndale greek uh New, or the English New Testament and I was comparing the verses there is no difference now spelling and punctuation and capitalizations have changed but remember he didn't say my capitalization will stay he says my words will always stay now it is important to know capitalization punctuation and spellings of words but he says that he will preserve his words not how the word is spelled but how what is the meaning behind the word and when it comes to, to translation, you know, let me just finish my last thought and then I'll go into translational differences. But then after the Geneva Bible and the Bishop's Bible, then we have King James of Scotland becoming king in England. 
And when he became king, obviously he's wanting to make sure that people, that, I mean, amongst the Protestants, you know, you have, you have Puritans and other Protestants groups, and they're all arguing with each other amongst the things about the Bible. And he wants to just make sure that everyone understands the simplicity of just, of, 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 let's do this right. There's some problems with the Geneva, not necessarily a problem in doctrine, but a problem in spelling, a problem in maybe a punctuation. There may be a problem with, let's just, let's just tighten this up, hone this in, and get it right. Because you got to understand, when you convey a message in another language, there is what's known as dynamic equivalences, or synonyms, and things like that. So then we have the translators of the King James Bible hit the scene. 54 brilliant scholars, who one of which, this guy, his name was Lancelot Andrews, he spoke Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Chaldean, Syriac, Arabic, and 15 other languages. This is one guy of the 54 translators for the course of seven years translated this Bible. So they had a group of 54 individuals, these 54 guys, who are the smartest scholars in the land. King James himself saying, I'm going to give you every possible utensil we can give you to get this done, get it done right, sit there, take all the time in the world you need, there's no time limit, just go to town on it. And then they came out with the perfect English translation of the Bible, the King James Version. And like I said, if you took this King James and compared it to the Tyndale, there is no word meaning difference. There is no, it's just, it's spelt different. We're gonna capitalize this. We're gonna change a punctuation here. Not because that punctuation is incorrect, but in our understanding of English, it needs to be brought in a little different. So then we got the King James Version of the Bible. And understand this, the King James Version of the Bible today has been the number one, most influential, best-selling, number one book of all time. To this day, you go on to like online book uh, buys and, and things that are to be uh, like sales for books, and they stopped putting the King James as number one after I think the 1970s because it kept being the number one most used, read, sold book in the world. To this day, for the last 400 years, the King James Bible has been the number one book. People who don't believe in the Bible, people who don't believe in God, look at this book and say, this is an amazing book. We don't know what is up with this, why it's so amazing, but this is amazing. We don't know what happened. Now, we believe that you know, God is the one who created his perfect word. But the, the rest of the world looks at this and they're like, wow, this is an amazing literature piece. I don't know why it's so amazing, but it's great. They'll they'll at least admit that. They'll look at the Iliads of Homer's Greek uh, things. They'll look at uh, Shakespeare's poems and all these other things, but no one will question the authenticity of the King James Version of the Bible. To this day, people are trying to use this as the standard for our English. Why? Because this is modern English. This is not ancient English. This isn't old English. This isn't middle English. This, the words that are found in this book are today, right now, pulpits across all America being preached from and expounded on. So, we understand the, the general history of where we got our English King James Version of the Bible, but what about these new translations? Why is it that they, they say something different? Where did they come from? Well, understand this. There are two, like I said, major differences of these modern translations and the rest of the, than the King James and every other English leading up to it. And it's through the discovery of modern manuscripts or modern day archaeology that within the 18 or so hundreds, they have been digging up 
manuscripts that appear to be older than the Textus Receptus. Not that they are older, they appear to be older. Some speculate they're not older, but some theorize they are. Nevertheless, let me ask you this. Does older mean better and more accurate? Older doesn't necessarily always mean better and more accurate. Why? Because think of it like this. Let's say there's a monumental history, a historical event, right? The moon landing. Uh, I don't know the exact time and date, but let's say the moon landing was in like 1964, March, right? And you found, because there are 5,900 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Let's say I found 5,000 news articles of the moon landing. And 5,000 of them say the moon landing was in, you know, uh, 1960, August 4th. But a handful of them say uh, it was in 1959, August 4th. Which one do you think would be the corruption? Or which one do you think would be the one in which did not preserve the test of time? Obviously, people can, as you see in the book of uh, one of the uh, book of Second Corinthians, Paul says that there is attack of the word of God in his time. We know that he attacked the word of God in the Garden of Eden. Paul says that there are people who are trying to corrupt and change the word of God. And in the early first, second, third century, you don't think that people today we know there are people like the New World Translation, Jehovah's Witnesses, that corrupt Greek manuscripts this very moment today to change God's word. But they didn't do it before? Of course, people have always been trying to pervert and attack God's word. And I'm going to show you and explain to you the three major manuscript bases of where these new translations come from. And the first one is known as Sinaiticus or Codex Sinaiticus, which is found in the Sinai Peninsula, hence the name Sinaiticus. And it was found in, I think, uh, the exact date was 1859 pretty recent in history it's the 1900s 1859 that's less than 200 years ago they found those manuscripts and then they also found in 19 or 1889 codex vaticanus which was found in the vatican library and then the final one is what's known as the papyrus or the papyri which was found in alexander uh, alexander egypt now understand this a greek manuscript found in egypt is already immediately suspect because the Bible talks about Egypt being a horrible, wicked place. A place in which refers to worldliness, ungodliness, wickedness, sinfulness. Whenever the world, whenever the Bible wants to paint out a people group that are horrible, it says, like the Egyptians. And it says that actually in Revelation, it says, the, that city that crucified our Lord, which is spiritually called Egypt and Sodom, in reference to Jerusalem. So obviously, Egypt, being that it's found there, is already immediately suspect. The second one was found in the Vatican Library. Immediately suspect. And number two was the Codex Sinaiticus, which was found in St. Catherine's Monastery in a trash pile being burnt in a fire. I wonder why it was in a trash pile. Maybe because it was trash. And some scholar in the past was like, this is corruption, throw it away and burn it. But then some guy, uh, forget his name, something Tischendorf, goes into this monastery and says, Oh, what are these things you're throwing? Whoa, they're Greek manuscripts. They appear to be older. I'm going to take these back with me to England and show people that there's an older manuscript. And like I said, I can't get too deep into the history and the understanding, but just understand this. This is the one thought I want you to get before I go into my last point. We believe in the preservation of God's Word. The inerrant, preserved, inspired Word of God. God never 
hid his word in a cave, in a monastery, in a jungle, in a anywhere for any period of time. Because he tells Isaiah, these words that I preach unto you, you will preach it, your sons will preach it, your sons' sons will preach it, from now and forever. That's what he told Isaiah. And that's what's known as the Masoretic text, the text of the, the Old Testament. So therefore, what that means is that if ever there was a time in history where we did not have the real Bible or the real manuscripts, that means that was never preserved. But we just found them. So for 600 years, we didn't have the real Word of God. No, we had the Bible all the way through. The received text is what we have trusted in. Because if you were alive in 1510, what would be your final authority? Remember, Erasmus didn't translate the TR or have the TR built till 1516. What if you're in 1510? What are you gonna are you gonna go to the Latin Vulgate or are you gonna go to the Greek manuscript that was received unto you? That is where the Word of God is. That's why the Greek Orthodox Church said, "You guys are wrong because we know Greek and we speak Greek, and what you're saying is not what these manuscripts are saying." So that's just the simple understanding of why we under or believe. But the King James is the final preserved word of God. This is a subnote, and I don't want to get too crazy and dogmatic about this point, but it is interesting because you've heard of like numerology. Has anyone heard of numerology? I'm not a fan of numerology. I don't believe in numerology, though I will say that my God is a creator of the universe and obviously created math and numbers. And there is some amazing mathematical equations we can look at that would only show us a creator. And some of the Bible emphasizes certain numbers of like, three in reference to the trinity he was dead for three days and three nights but another number that's interesting is the number seven because it shows the completion you know the lord created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh but notice what it says and you don't need to turn there in psalms 12 6 it says the word of the lord are pure words as silver tried in the furnace of earth purified seven times how many english bibles were there after the king james we have the tyndale the Coverdale, the Matthew, the Great, the Geneva, the Bishops, and then the King James Version of the Bible. The perfect, as fire is tried in the furnace of fire, purified seven times. It took them seven years to translate. So like I said, I don't get too dogmatic about it, but it just seems pretty coincidental that it took exactly this number of completion to get things perfect for us. Now, let's go into a comparison and contrast okay um if you have a king james in your hand or whatever bible you have use it because i want to show you what's more important than this history what's more important than me explaining these things what's the final thing i want you to get is jesus christ said of his ministry my sheep hear my voice and a stranger they will not follow we believe that the bible is the perfect word of god and if we are sheep we will follow the shepherd jesus christ is known as the good shepherd and his words are the final authority. Now I want to show you the final product, not the history leading up to, not the translational understandings of why they translated this one and why they translated this one. Finished copies, King James Version of the Bible, new modern translations of the Bible. I'm gonna show you some proof texts that show the strategic attack on specific doctrines that tamper with salvation, who God is, and all these other essential doctrines because if you have a book that has contradictions in, in itself you don't necessarily care too much about doctrine you care more about juking and jiving and gyrating for jesus rather than fine combing every word of god and really knowing what does god mean and say with this 
You know, they say out of Paul that he's going mad because he was studying his Bible. But like Paul, going crazy, almost persuadest thou me to be a Christian. And he's just like, look, I have zeal. And as Gideon says, follow, you know, see my zeal for the Lord. Because we care, as David after a man, a man after God's own heart, wants to know what God has said. So we're going to find out what he says. So here are the comparisons with the final products. And I'm not going to go into every English translation. You know why? Because there are 500 of them. I'm going to use the top three most used modern translation, which is the NIV, the ESV, and the NLT. There are other ones. There are lots of other ones. But these three are the most used ones of modern translations. And I'm going to show you, even the most used ones are corrupted in multiple places. So turn to your Bibles, if you would, to... First, First John 5, 7. Now before I go into the rest of this, understand this. Before, remember what the Bible said in Revelation 22. If any man adds to my word or takes away from my word. The NIV and modern translations take out 16 complete verses out of the New Testament. Before we even go into differences, before we even go into why they changed this year, why they changed this year, they've taken already out 16 complete verses. Why? Because they don't think it was in the original. So they've already taken from God's word. And one of those is 1 John 5, 7. What it says in 1 John 5, 7 in the King James Bible, it says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, who God is. God, there's one God made up of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There is no misunderstanding this doctrine. There is no misunderstanding this principle. One God, three people, Father, Word, and Holy Ghost. We understand that because of the simple understanding of 1 John 5, 7. You know what they say in the New Translation? It says, For there are three that testify. Doesn't mention the Father. Doesn't mention the Son. Doesn't mention the Holy Ghost. Doesn't mention that these three are one. It just says, for there are three that testify. Three what that testify what? Well, there are three that testify. So obviously it already tampered with the doctrine of the Trinity. But now if you would turn to your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3.16. A very famous passage in the Bible. 1 Timothy 3.16. It says in the King James, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh proving that Jesus 1 Timothy 3.16 very popular passage in the Bible and it says without controversy great is the mystery of godliness God was manifested in the flesh there is no misunderstanding who came into the world Jesus Christ was in the world he was God so the first thing they attacked was the Trinity now they're trying to say is Jesus Christ God but what does it say in modern translations it just simply says, Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in the human body. No one's questioning whether or not Jesus came in the flesh. What we're wondering is Jesus Christ God. How many faiths out there do you know that have denied Jesus Christ to be God in the form of a man? Every faith that's not Christian. The Muslims don't believe he was the Son of God, but that he was a prophet. Mormons believe he was a created being of God and that he was not the Son of God. Other denominations, Jehovah's Witness, 
don't believe he's the son of God. They believe he's Michael the Archangel. And they could go to these modern versions and show that they say, see, it doesn't say God was manifested in the flesh. It says he was manifested in the flesh. But here's the word, that Greek underlying word, 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16, that word in Greek is theos. You guys know of a word named theology, right? Which is just a, a belief in God. But they're trying to say it's has, which is the word for he. And theos and has are very similar. But nevertheless, the word that the Bible translated this as was God was manifested in the flesh. Can't be misunderstood. So obviously, this shows that Jesus Christ is God. Period. But not only that, it also says in uh, Hebrews 1.8, you don't need to turn there, but it says in Hebrews 1.8, but uh, this is Jehovah speaking to the Son, or about the Son, or unto the Son. He says, But under the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever. A scepter of thy righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. So the Bible is saying that Jesus Christ, the Father, calls Jesus God. The modern translations tamper with that. Not only that, turn to your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. So number one, they already tampered with the Trinity. The Trinity. They already tampered with he was God in the flesh. They've already tampered with Jesus is God. But not only that, these modern translations also tamper who his father was. The Bible teaches in Luke 2, in the King James Version, in every other English leading up to it, and the Greek leading up to it, that Joseph was not Jesus Christ's father. He was the stepdad, you can give him that, but he was not the father of Jesus Christ. And in Luke 2, the Bible reads or what these perversions of the Bible read, basically, I'm going to have to step in for a second so I don't get this all destroyed. It says, and his father and mother marveled at these things that were said about him. So these different translations call Joseph Jesus' father. Was Joseph Jesus' father? Yes or no? Of course not. But not only that, if you go to the ending of this chapter, if you take a look, you'll see that basically Jesus corrects his mother Mary and says, because when Jesus gets lost, right, they go to Jerusalem and they go a day's journey and Jesus hangs back and is with people in the temple. He goes, the Joseph and Mary go and find Jesus in the temple and they say, hey, son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? And he basically tells them, Thy fa your father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And Jesus says, which see not that I must be about my father's business? Because he was in the temple preaching the words of God. And because of weather permitting times, we're going to have to cut this off short. But basically, if ever you guys have ever questioned or doubt the concept of why we believe in the preservation of God's word, it's simply because we do not accept new discoveries. What if tomorrow they come out, come out with a new Greek manuscript? What if tomorrow someone digs up a manuscript and it appears to be straight from the apostle's hand? They are like, we think this is from St. John himself, or the Apostle John. Then it was not preserved. We believe in the preservation of God's Word through the version of the King James Bible. And, you know, like I said, like I, because of weather, we're going to have to call it short. But that's why in the future, hopefully, we can get a better place to do this. But let's just close it there, and we'll get inside. You need a...